Support for this podcast and the following message come from the University of Alabama, offering over 70 premier bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degree programs in a flexible online format through Bama by Distance. Learn more or apply today at bamabydistance.ua.edu. Welcome to Pop Culture Happy Hour, NPR's roundtable podcast about what we're watching, reading, and listening to. I'm Stephen Thompson. I'm a writer and editor with NPR Music. This week, in the absence of our pal Linda Holmes, we're going to depart from our usual format with a smorgasbord of odds and ends, a little Emmys chat, plus interviews with a comedian and an author, so stick around. Hey, Sam Sanders here from the NPR Politics Podcast. Mark your calendar. Monday, September 26th is the very first presidential debate. And the next morning, we are inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with us. We'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every single debate. So you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or finish walking the dog. Whatever your morning routine, make us a part of it. The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. All right, back to the show. We've got interviews and awards on this week's show, but before we get started here in non-historic Studio 36, I've got a gentleman in the studio that I'd like to introduce. Glenn Weldon, what do you do at NPR? I write about books, comics, and other stuff for the NPR website. Now, Glenn, before we begin, I want to share a quick update on our West Coast tour. Like San Francisco and Los Angeles, I am happy to report that Seattle is now sold out. But there are still tickets in Portland. If you're in Portland or wish to travel to Portland on Wednesday, October 19th, come see us. We are appearing with Audie Cornish from All Things Considered. Glenn, you were a fan of Audie Cornish's. A big fan of Audie Cornish. And as we've said many times, she is fantastic live. She's so good live. So we can pretty much guarantee a good show. For tickets to our Portland show at Revolution Hall on October 19th, visit nprpresents.org. Now, later in October, we are closing out our West Coast trip with an appearance at the Now Here This Festival in Anaheim, California. We are recording a live show there on Saturday, October 29th, and we would love to see you there. Our fourth chair, speaking of people Glenn enjoys, will be Guy Branham from Pop Rocket. You are a Guy Branham fan. Uh, Yes, I'm a big fan of Guy Branham. He's a great stand-up. He's a writer for The Mindy Project, and he also hosts Pop Rocket. So he's good at talking about pop culture and also is very funny. So it's going to be great. I will try to keep up. For more information or to buy tickets, visit nowhearthisfest.com. And now for last weekend's Emmy Awards, Mm -hmm. Glenn Weldon, you put together a very ambitious preview package for the Emmy Awards, which I encourage everyone to read uh, at NPR.org. Glenn, how how did those go? Well, uh, I predicted that I would be 100% right, Mm -hmm. and I was... You know, not. Um, But I got uh, 17 out of 27, which if you follow the rules (laughs) of math, Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, 62% a failing grade. But in my defense, I'm better than a coin toss. (laughs) <laughs> significantly better than a coin toss. But, but included in those 62% are, are like, you called Julia Louis-Dreyfus. There, there were several gimmies of this evening. Julia Louis-Dreyfus winning for Veep was a gimme. Jeffrey Tambor winning for Transparent was a gimme. And Sarah Paulson winning as Marsha Clark for uh, People vs. O.G. Simpson was the third and final gimme. The rest was more surprising than I anticipated. <laughs> <laughs> you 
it, don't say. Because there was a change to the way uh, the Emmys are voted for mm-hmm. this year. In the past, if you were an Emmy voter, you would look at a category and you would rank your choices. Mm-hmm. Top choice, bottom choice. Like, this year, everybody picked just one thing in each category. I'm not big with statistics. I couldn't tell you why I feel this way, but mm-hmm. I feel like... A lot of consensus choices that would have just snuck in there because a number of people sure. ranked them high enough. Everybody'd heard of them. Everybody'd heard of them kind of went away. And you got things like Louis Anderson winning for baskets, right. like Ben Mendelssohn out of precisely nowhere winning for Bloodline. Right. Nobody picked that. Yep. Uh, nobody saw that coming. But I think individual, I think picking things individually helped some things come through that, that weren't able to come through before. I think that's a really interesting point, and I, I think it did have a tremendous effect on this ceremony. I, my chief complaint about the Emmys is always the juggernaut effect, and that juggernauts will roll along for six, seven, eight years, where it's like, oh, is it going to be Frasier, or is it going to be, you know... And this time around, while you still have some of that, you had Julia Louis-Dreyfus winning for, what, the fifth time in a row? Mm -hmm. And she's won, I mean, she's won a ton of Emmys. Yep. You still have a little bit more of a rewarding of of people who are still surprising and fresh. I mean, I think Tatiana Maslany should have won for the first season of Orphan Black Absolutely. instead of for the fourth season of Orphan Black. Mm-hmm. Rami Malek won Best Actor in a Drama Series for Mr. Robot, which which, which you called mm-hmm. in your preview piece, but that's still a fairly fresh show. Mm-hmm. This was his first nomination for the first year of the show. It felt a little bit less like, here's another award for Modern Family, and here is, I mean, Game of Thrones, which has been on forever, Game of Thrones won a lot. Yeah, and it's going to keep winning. I, I, that's one of the ones that I think it's going to be the toughest to dislodge until mm-hmm. it runs its course because it is such an achievement, a logistical achievement, that show. The other thing that's happening is that as the storylines tie together, that show is going to feel more satisfying. Right. It's going to hit our sweet spots in, in a bigger way, and it's going to seem like a bigger and bigger achievement as we near to the end. So I, I don't see any other drama knocking it off its perch for a while yet. Comedy was uh, surprising. Master of None won for comedy writing, right. uh, which uh, I didn't see coming because I usually Emmy voters like to sit with a show for a little yeah. bit before they reward it. And yeah. th- this that didn't happen this year for that show. I do think the broadcast benefited from Jimmy Kimmel's approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jimmy Kimmel's approach, and I don't come into this with any kind of feeling for or against Jimmy Kimmel. He's mm-hmm. there in the, in the landscape. I, I never really paid him much attention. Uh, but he fit this because they decided not to go in a, this is television's greatest night kind right. of thing. They went very low key. Yeah. And not undercutting ironic, snarky in mm-hmm. a Letterman vein, but but just a, what's the big deal, guys? Mm-hmm. Let's let's take it down a notch. And he was present in moments when you wanted somebody to be present. Like the thing about these broadcasts is that they're one of the last few live events where we all kind of gather around the television. Not many of us. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, fewer than ever in Emmy history. And only 9.7 million people watched this last Emmys broadcast as opposed to the 20.5 who were watching the Packers game. Yeah, I watched the Emmys this morning. Yeah. <laughs> But you want a reminder that we are all in this moment together. And when something like Jill Soloway puts a button at the end of her speech, topple the patriarchy. Topple the patriarchy. (laughs) Thank you to the trans community for your lived lives. We need to stop violence against transgender women and topple the patriarchy. Topple the patriarchy. You want Jimmy Kimball to be able to do something with it. Right. And what he does is not much. Just saying, hey, is Topple of Patriarchy good for me? That's all he needs to do right. to remind you that he didn't go back to a team of writers and come up with a yeah. bid and then go back out. He just pivoted. I'm trying to figure out if Topple the Patriarchy is a good thing for me or not. 
I thought he was a very nice match for the Emmys. And I think the emotion and the depth and the feeling of prestige came out in the speeches. I thought there were some very lovely, emotionally rich speeches. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is the one that everybody's kind of talking about the next morning. Um, Lastly, I'd like to dedicate this to my father, William Louis-Dreyfus, who passed away on Friday. And I'm so glad that he liked Veep because his opinion was the one that really mattered. Thank you. You had this gorgeous Sterling K. Brown speech. He played Christopher Darden in The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Yeah, that Emmy speech should win an Emmy. Uh, you, you saw him step up to the mic and take a moment and just bask in it. That's what we want to see. We want to see you feel that moment. And then yeah. the moment he takes when he steps up to the podium there, he kind of looks around the room and you can kind of feel him breathing Kind of this. breathing in the yeah. moment. That's I, that's great. I thought Kate McKinnon's speech, sure. uh, she won for Saturday Night Live uh, as support actress in a comedy series. They don't usually give that award to Saturday Night Live performers. They don't usually give that to sketch performers. It was really surprising and really heartening to see. Thank you to the Academy so much. Uh, Good sentence. Uh, Thank you. So I can't, this is this is really crazy, you guys. Thank you to Warren Michael. I thought Alan Yang, yeah. uh, Alan Yang and Aziz Ansari wrote that episode of Masters of None with Aziz Ansari's parents in it. Mm-hmm. And I thought Alan Yang gave a beautiful speech that hit a point very hard while still being incredibly jovial. Right. There's 17 million Asian Americans in this country, and there's 17 million Italian Americans. They have The Godfather, Goodfellas, Rocky, The Sopranos. We got Long Duck Dog, so we got a long way to go. But I know we can get there. I believe in us. It's just going to take a lot of hard work. Asian parents out there, if you could just do me a favor, if just a couple of you get your kids' cameras instead of violins, we'll be all good. So we'll just do it. Jeffrey Tambor is always, you know, incredibly gracious and winning. I I found so many of the speeches, Tatiana Maslany reading her speech off her phone, which, boy, that's a a sign of the times. Mm -hmm. Grease, live, Beyonce's (laughs) Lemonade. That is a travesty. I've seen both. It's so stupid. (laughs) I mean, Grease Live, that is, it, that is a tremendous feat of directing. Absolutely. I do not, I do not necessarily mind that winning, like, directing, mm-hmm. but as a piece, yeah. as a piece of art, yeah. as something that people will talk about, yeah. boy. Um, <laughs> John Oliver won for um, Last Week Tonight, which is, if you believe in joke writing <laughs> as opposed to celebrities singing karaoke or whatever, mm-hmm. uh, if you believe in crafting a show with a very specific singular viewpoint right. as opposed to uh, doing party games and going viral. Uh, and there is nothing wrong with party games or going I, viral. I, I know those that. Are, those are fun shows. I, I did think that a Corden or a Fallon would have run away with it only because of these shows are measuring not just quality but also impact. And sure. you can you could argue that the impact just in terms of people seeing a bunch of Adele videos <laughs> is, <laughs> is, is larger with those other shows. But I'm really glad the John Oliver show won. I would throw out there that the John Oliver show had one kind of advantage over some of those shows the way a show like Transparent has an advantage over others billed as comedies Mm -hmm. in that the John Oliver show while it is funny is very very serious as well and is hitting big points home and is is really going for something grander and more influential I think in a way in a way it has some power to it in ways that maybe carpool karaoke or whatever doesn't sure we also learned at um, this year's Emmys Peter Scolari uh, is uh, is an Emmy winner for his supporting role on girls playing Lena Dunham dad 
Uh, I did a little research and, and found out that in, in the origins of the Emmy, the, the Emmy is named, it's interesting, uh, for the image orthicon. That's something that's actually a, a camera tube uh, back in the early days. Sounds to me more like a personal problem. So he's a guy that you've been pulling for, pulling for since Bosom Buddies, where he was, you know, the Andrew Ridgely. <laughs> <laughs> pulling for him since uh, his great role uh, on Newhart. And, you know, he's just, he's been around. You want to give him something. You, and this was uh, great to see. I was really happy to see that. And speaking of people we're pulling for, Amy Poehler won her first ever Emmy. Yep. Again, she won that earlier. That was not a, an award given out on the telecast. So breaking down kind of the three major categories of awards, you have comedy, you have drama, and you have your kind of miniseries, movie type stuff. Mm-hmm. So V Deep one best comedy series. Right. And that it had one last year. But I think this was the Emmy voters rewarding the show because Inuchi, the co-creator and showrunner, left the show this yeah. season and it went off on its own, maintained a very high quality, just as funny, just as acerbic as ever. And I think the Emmy voters wanted to say, you know, good on you. Yeah. So you had Veep there. You have Game of Thrones over here winning best drama. Did not win any acting awards. No. That was the big award at the end of the night. And then in your, your miniseries, Oh my God! It was it was People versus O.J. Simpson all the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean that was that was elevated by its amazing performances, most of which were uh, rewarded, and it was inescapable. Any other year, Fargo would have run the table because right. Fargo was a really great year, really great season, standout achievement. But it was just because the People versus O.J. Simpson touches on themes that we're still dealing with today, and Fargo is off in this corner being excellent, but its own thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Uh, People, voters, especially voters who live in L.A., felt a little bit more inclined to reward it. Yeah. We would love to hear your thoughts on this year's Emmys. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or on Twitter at PCHH. After the break, we'll check in with NPR's David Green and hear his recent interview with the comedian Hurry Kondabolu. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from iTunes Movies with the Sundance hit Hunt for the Wilder People. Raised on hip-hop and foster care, defiant city kid Ricky Baker gets a fresh start in the New Zealand countryside. When a tragedy strikes that threatens to put Ricky back in the system, he and his foster father go on the run in the wilderness. A national manhunt ensues, and the newly branded outlaws must put aside their differences to survive as a family. Hunt for the Wilder People, available to own exclusively on iTunes Movies, September 13th. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. For our next topic, we thought we'd turn things over to our pal, David Green. David, what do you do at NPR? I am the resident Pittsburgh Steelers fan. <laughs> I'm the president of the Pittsburgh Steelers fan club. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I host Morning Edition when I'm not busy oh, doing that. Oh, okay. Yeah. But we're not here to talk about Super Bowl Forty Five. We are not. You and I will talk about that enough we'll, we'll when, talk. when the Packers and Steelers are getting ready for it. But yeah, more on that later. All right. Well, not, not on this episode <laughs> right, of the show. Right. It is a, a pleasure to have you well, here. Well, thanks for having me. I oh, love you guys. It, now, you brought with you an interview that you did for Morning Edition, correct? I did. Yeah, it's, it's with a comic and... Um, I was kind of overwhelmed because I knew nothing about this comic. His name is Hurry Kondabolu. Um, and Alyssa Eads, who's a wonderful producer on our show, drew me to him and said, you've got to talk to this guy. And I'm so glad she did because he's uh, he's just something. He grew up in Queens, New York. His parents, uh, Indian immigrants. And he you know, did stand up sort of as a hobby for a while. He got a master's degree in human rights from the London School of Economics. <laughs> right. uh, he was a human rights, an immigrant activist uh, in Seattle. And so I asked him, I was like, what was that stuff just, you know, too boring and you want to do comedy? But comedy started becoming more and more of his 
his life and certainly his experience that, that I was talking about shapes a lot of his comedy. Right. He talks about race. He talks about identity. He talks about immigration. He really takes on tough, sensitive subjects and makes you grapple with them and makes you laugh. So let's hear that conversation now. Here's David Green talking to Hari Kondabolu. Your mother, you say she's the reason you're funny. Yeah. I got to understand that. I mean, I think that as a as a person who left everything behind, being an Indian immigrant, she was a doctor in India, moving here, I think that that's difficult. And yet she laughed her way through it. Uh-huh. She could take whatever tragedy, whether it was losing a parent or struggling in America, and she was able to turn that into something funny, at least momentarily. And I don't think I appreciated that as much uh, s- s- until recently, really. And I realized, like, oh, that's where it's coming from. Why am I so dark? Why am I able to take something terrible and try to recycle it into something positive? That comes from her. Yeah. That's interesting. Like, I, I think about a joke I, I was just watching. Um, when you go from Black Lives Matter to just people laughing their butts off. and Right. Which is hard. Which is hard to do. But I feel like that's where the greatest jokes are. The stuff that is harder to get to. Um, sometimes, you know, you run the risk of alienating people just off the subject, but you'd hope that they would listen long enough where they can see the potential gem at the end. Do you see audiences? Like, you're like, oh, my God, I'm totally losing those people in that row. They are offended and... I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I see people staring at me and not laughing. I know what a death stare looks like. You know, you know when people are heckling and it's not just because they're drunk. <laughs> I, I, I certainly, you know, am used to people walking out. Um, really? Really? Yes, sure. I mean, one thing I've noticed is talking about race, there are definitely some white people that, that don't like that, that certainly don't. And it's not even always the the content. It's just saying white people because you know a lot of white people are not used to being called white. They get to be people, they're human beings, their first name. So I know that must be frustrating if you're not used to it. Because I'm sure there's somebody in here It's like, oh, he's saying white people. Is he talking about me? He's saying white people, so he must be talking about me. If you think I'm talking about you, then yeah, I'm definitely talking about you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the cool white people in this room and the people of color know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about white people. I'm not talking about white people. Yeah, you get it. Some of you know what I'm saying. Some of you think I'm dog whistling right now. White fragility is the idea of when you question white people about race or privilege or things like that, they fold because they're fragile because they're not used to those discussions. The rest of us, we've had to get used to being the other. We've had to get used to constantly answering those questions. We've been required to stand up for ourselves uh, and and to force ourselves into the spotlight because no one's going to give it to us. When you question whiteness and when you question why white people can get what they get, and this isn't universal, obviously, but for those who have various privileges, whiteness helps. When you put that discussion out there, white people getting upset, getting emotional, getting angry. Hmm. So does that drive you a lot in, in your comedy? I mean, do you want to make white people think about their place, challenge them, expose their fragility? No, really. I mean, I don't go on stage to make people uncomfortable or uh, to offend anyone. I go out there to speak my truth. You know, I, let, you know let me fix that. No, I, I think I do go out actually to, with the risk of offending people. I'm okay with offense, to be uh-huh. honest with you. I think offense happens when it uh, something questions your beliefs and your sensibilities and you don't know how to handle that. I think that can be a good thing. It forces an issue. I think causing people pain, however, 
can be different. I think that's a little more complicated. Give me an you, example of maybe a recent stand-up uh, or somewhere where you felt like you found that balance perfectly with an audience. Oh, boy. that That's a hard... You mean like when I was able to, to yeah, balance... Like challenged, offend, but not cause someone pain. I mean, I think about when you've brought up impersonations you do of your parents and you say that you're asked why no accent. Right. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if I can say that on air, the, the punchline. <laughs> sure, you can. I mean, you can bleep anything. So. Oh, sh- sure. Um, you know, people ask me, you know, uh, why I don't do uh, accents of my parents. Um, let me try that again. You know, people ask me why I don't do impressions of my parents, and the answer to that question is, <laughs> you. That's why I don't do impressions of my parents. I like I mean, that you retook the joke. I mean, you, you really do. You, you want the delivery to be just right. Oh, yeah. And also, I mean, that joke, too, is a is a weird one. That joke is almost all based on delivery. If uh-huh. I'm too angry, that doesn't work. <laughs> if I'm already cursing in it, so the, the curse has to be well-placed. Right. What do you think it says about the people who ask you about the accent and why you're not using them? Um, I think some people are used to accents because... That's how they see immigrants. Hmm. Immigrants are funny voices. Immigrants are foreign, strange experiences. And I think there are tons of examples where people have spoken about their parents and all they are is an accent. My parents are getting older, right? When you have older parents, you have to have difficult conversations with them, what they want for their final wishes, right? Cremation, funeral. These are difficult conversations that I've been having recently. And because I am who I am, I decided it was time to tell my parents what I wanted for my final wishes, right? (laughs) So I told them, I said, if I'm ever murdered, it's very important that the killer doesn't get the death penalty because I don't believe in state violence. So don't push for the death penalty. I don't want my death to lead to another death, regardless of what this person did to me or to my body, I don't want the killer to get the death penalty. And I remember what my mother said to me. She said, why do you always have to ruin dinner? It's not about dinner, mom. It's about my final wishes and they should be respected. You're not that famous, hurry. Nobody's gonna kill you, okay? You don't know that dad tells people I'm Aziz Ansari. You don't even know. You got a graduate degree in human rights from the London School of Economics. Um, That's good work. Uh, Mm -hmm. You were a rights organizer for immigrants in Seattle. I mean, was it? Were you just getting bored or something? It wasn't enough work. Or comedy was always something I did. I've done comedy since uh, I was 17 years old at Townsend Harris High School in Flushing. Oh, you were doing like for your high school class. You were up there doing. I mean, I had a teacher. My favorite teacher, uh, Chris Hackney, he used to have little breaks in class where I was able to do stand-up. What? You had a better high school experience than I did. Oh, I he was amazing. Were me for, what, stand-up time at the end of class? What did he, he teach? It was global studies. So, I mean, it would have oh, to be... of course. It would have to be connected to the lessons, you oh, know what I mean? So the class would end and he'd be like, we have been talking oh, it was, about it was in the middle. and, oh, the middle, the comedy routine would come in the middle. Yeah, we would have these press conferences where people would present articles and things that happened that week and then each group would have to do little commercials and skits and uh, after a while it was like kind of obvious that I was the one who was going to be doing them every single week Mm -hmm. like nobody else was going to do it I was going to do it because I was good at it and I made people laugh and that was a huge confidence boost and feel that rush you know was incredible that's awesome shout out to Mr. Hackney for having the coolest global studies class in any high school in America yes you know, I, I wanted to ask you this. I mean, you, you did advocacy work for immigrants. I mean, you have this degree in human rights. 
you're doing comedy now full time and you seem pretty adamant that you're not an activist. Yeah. Why do you make that point so clearly? Because would there be something wrong with being a comic who does activism through it? Sure. Wait, is it okay if I answer a question you asked before I realize I didn't answer the question about how did I get from... You could, Yeah, this is like a choose-your-own-adventure interview. You can okay, decide. Sure. If you want to go back to question two, it's we can... Yeah, yeah, yeah anything. I'll, yeah, go I'll, for yeah, it. I'll, I'll first I'll answer that question because <laughs> I'm realizing I, I kind yeah, of... Yeah, no, no. Go ahead. Go for it. I've done comedy since high school, so once... I was a, became politicized, especially post 9-11. I, I started to question the country I was living in. Why are we going to war? Why are there hate crimes against brown people? Why are so many people being deported? And all of a sudden, my stand-up started to reflect my political beliefs. And when I moved to Seattle to be an immigrant rights organizer, I did comedy at night because there was a great young scene. And it was just a thing I loved to do. Like a hobby. Like a hobby. Yeah. I was a hobbyist for sure. And somehow while doing it as a hobby, I built a following in Seattle and got discovered by the HBO Comedy Festival and got a manager and was at Jimmy Kimmel Live while I was still working as an immigrant rights organizer. You had to so, say to, to immigrants you were working with, like, I got to run to do this little <laughs> thing tonight with Jimmy Kimmel. It'll be fine. I'll be back tomorrow. I mean, that's the reason why I stopped organizing because I realized you can't do both. Like there is no such thing as a part-time organizer. You know, you can't <laughs> be like, I got to stop. I'm going to be on TV tomorrow. So the rest of you can handle the, the rally without me. People don't usually see this as a job, right? And I know this because people ask me what I do for a living and I tell them I'm a stand-up comedian and then they'll go, oh, okay. As if I said, I'm a scarecrow. Oh, Okay, you can do that for a living. All right. I know I'm in Portland, so I hope I didn't offend anybody. Can I jump back to question 7A.2? Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you be, I mean, what, why, why can't you be both a comic and activist? Why are you so determined to say I'm, I'm not doing activism? I don't think this is activism. I think once you start treating art as activism, for me, I feel like you run the risk of focusing on the activism part more than the quality of the art. Hmm. I think art that has messages is most effective when it's good, when people don't know there's medicine in it. You know, like I've, I've seen enough art that is political where, I, where after I leave it, I think that was so righteous and I agree with everything, but I was bored to death. It has to be interesting. You have to be good at writing poetry. You have to be good at playing the guitar. You have to have a nice singing voice. And I think the same is true with stand-up. I have to be good at the art form. Otherwise, it's not effective. Well, I uh, whenever I talk to musicians, I'll often say, uh, what song do you want us to play when we finish up the interview? So I'll ask you, is there, is there something from one of your albums or a, a stand-up routine or something that we could find that you'd want us to to play as we say goodbye? Yeah, you know, there's a there's a series of jokes that my mother does. Uh-huh. That I'd, I'd like um, I'd like you to play the the jokes that I've written down that my mother. You oh, know, this is when comp- you call her what she what she says to you. Yeah, what she says to uh, me. That, that's very funny. My, my mom is you know she's so funny, and I feel like uh, I've taken that for granted. And and so in the album, I really wanted people to see how funny she was, and it was also another way of talking about how full the experience of immigrants are. My mom is funny, and I don't think most people would think of her as funny just by seeing her from day to day. Oh, she's an, she's an Indian immigrant. She wears a sari sometimes. I don't think they know that she's also hysterically funny. What a lovely bookend. We will uh, we will play it. Your mom's voice will be heard by our listeners. Um, Hurry, this was really fun. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, David. My mom is the funniest person I know. My mom is the reason I'm funny. My dad's the reason I have anxiety. But my mom... <laughs> 
My mom is the reason I'm funny. And like a lot of us, I've taken my mom for granted. So recently I decided to make a list of all the funny things my mom has been saying. So here are a few of my favorite mom jokes, right? Actual things that my mom has said. First thing, I called my mom and I said, hey mom, sorry I didn't call earlier this week. And she said, it's okay, it was a relief. And then on Mother's Day, I said, happy Mother's Day, mom. How do you feel? And she said, so you ignore me all year and then throw flowers at me for a day? off. (laughs) And then on the 4th of July, I said, happy Independence Day, mom. And she said, thanks, son, but I lost my independence 35 years ago. (laughs) That was our pal David Green talking to Hurry Kondabolu. When we return, we will check in with NPR's Petra Mayer and hear some of her recent interview with the writer Alan Moore. So come right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Chipotle. For 23 years, they've been committed to sourcing the best, most noble ingredients they can find, prepping them with care and cooking them using simple recipes without the use of artificial flavors, colors, or sweeteners. They spend hours marinating, seasoning, and pampering the ingredients to perfection. Whether they're hand chopping, hand slicing, hand dicing, or hand mashing, the ingredients at Chipotle get the royal treatment every day. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour for our final topic this week. We thought we'd check in with our pal Petra Mayer, who is in the studio with Glenn and me now. Petra, what do you do at NPR? I am an editor at NPR Books. Excellent. Well, welcome to the show. It's always nice to be here with you guys. Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Now, before we hear your interview with Alan Moore, let's have you set the scene for those who might not know, who is Alan Moore? Gosh, that's a big question. He he has a very impressive beard. Uh He's basically your spooky comics grandpa. Right. (laughs) Um, I mean, he is... A figure of great importance to comics fans, although he sort of has disavowed a lot of his comics and doesn't talk about them much anymore, which is why it's sort of weird to dive into it this way. But most people will know him because he's the creator behind titles like Swamp Thing, Watchmen, V for Vendetta, From Hell, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. I think the easiest sort of visual hook, if you want to think about Alan Moore, is if you think of the Guy Fox masks that all the <laughs> Occupy protesters wear, those mm-hmm. come from V for Vendetta. So that's right. how a lot of people are going to know his work. He's also done Promethea. He's had his own imprint. Top 10. Top 10, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I love Top 10 so yeah. much. <laughs> but yeah, it's important to note that he was right there at the forefront of a lot of the grim and gritty comics of right. the uh, 80s. And he has gone on to disavow pretty much everything he's ever done. <laughs> That's true. I, I sort of, he is responsible for The Killing Joke, which was one of the first dark, grim and gritty Batman stories in the 80s. Um, he has disavowed it. Um, <laughs> but he he's definitely a very influential dude. I mean, I wasn't going to talk about his comics. The reason that I got to talk to him was that he has written this massive new novel novel, Mm. you know, because he's moving on to different projects now, not so much comics anymore. And it's called Jerusalem. And it's more than 1,200 pages long. And um, it's hard to describe it. All of the marketing materials say it's about nothing and everything, which sounds kind of weird, but is essentially true. What it is at heart is a love letter to his hometown. He's from Northampton, which is a little town about an hour north of London. And it's kind of nondescript. I mean, 
I can't think of an American equivalent. I mean, it's like getting excited about Rockville. (laughs) 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 For those of you in the D.C. area. A fairly drab Maryland (laughs) suburb. Yeah. So he's from Northampton, and he's from a very specific part of Northampton called the Burroughs, which is the historical heart of the town. And it was sort of the wrong side of the tracks. Mm -hmm. So the book is partially an attempt to kind of preserve almost in amber this neighborhood that he loves and remembers, and also just a love letter to the town at large. I mean, it's like thousands of years of history of this one town. I mean, we can get into kind of the whole cosmology if you want to. There's a very complicated one. But basically, it's a desire to love and preserve this place that he's from. Now, this was not a typical NPR interview where you're sitting in a studio. You're walking around Northampton. You did this on location, right? I did. He doesn't leave Northampton a whole lot. So I went there. We were sitting in a local studio, which for cartoon fans out there is the same studio who recorded his part in The Simpsons at. Ah. Nice. And it's kind of great because we're sitting there and like there's a stained glass window with a seven pointed star and there's a skull on the shelf. And there he is with his hand rolled cigarettes, which are like seriously as long as your hand. Wow. <laughs> it was very, very atmospheric. Wow. Well, let's uh, let's hear some of your interview with uh, with Alan Moore. Thank you, Petra. Sure. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about the structure of the book. Before I had ever read it, all of the press materials said this is a book in which nothing happens. It doesn't have an arc as such, a lot happens. Was that conscious? Did it kind of grow organically or did you already know? Well, I I didn't know in the sense that you'd say I knew. That's not to say that I didn't maybe have some kind of presentiment. But what basically happened was there were a load of completely separate urges to do what probably could have been separate books. But I somehow sense that, no, this is all part of the same thing, but it would have to be quite a big thing to get all of these ideas in. And I had really no idea how to approach that in terms of structuring, but I realised, yes, it is going to need a structure. So I wrote down 35 chapter titles that I thought sounded kind of smart or funny. Then I shuffled these titles into what I thought would be a a reasonable order. Looking back, this is ridiculous. This is a ridiculous way to start a huge novel. But uh, then I just started with the first title on the list, Work in Progress. Spent the next eight to ten years working through all of the other titles in that order. And the structure kind of emerged as I went along. I think it works. And it brought its own structural problems, which brought their own kind of structural solutions. I have to ask, what did your editor say? Well, um, (laughs) you have to realise that uh, editor... Did you have an editor? Well, yes, I did. I had two or three. But I started out thinking, right, I want to write this book the way that I want to write it. Yes, I know it's too big. Yes, I know that it's about a topic which doesn't generally get any coverage at all. Uh, There are very few working class writers, especially even today. And when the working class are depicted in literature, then it is generally a choice between either deploring them for their vulgarity, their stupidity, or pitying them. Now, I have to say that neither of these two options corresponds to the way that working class people see themselves. Of course it doesn't. We all see ourselves as heroes in our own narratives. And 
that was one of the big reasons for writing Jerusalem the way that I did it. So I didn't want anybody actually saying, no, we don't think this works. No, if you could cut this bit, because it wasn't a book for editors or publishers. It was a book for me. On a completely different subject. (laughs) I'm always interested in people's visions of the future. And I noticed that you don't see mankind lasting too much longer. Mm. Although, since we're all still here, always. Well, yeah, it's, uh, well, this is the point. I mean, look, one of the things for Jerusalem, one of the impetuses behind it was that during the 1980s, I'd got two small children, and the Cold War was the hottest that it has ever been. And I had read that the reason why a lot of children, they gave nuclear war as their biggest fear, and when asked why nuclear war was their biggest fear, they said, because our parents won't talk about it. So I thought, right, I'll do that then. I will actually explain nuclear war to my kids, which I did, Mm -hmm. and which also involved explaining it to myself. And one of the things that struck me was that if we did have some world-ending nuclear cataclysm, what would that mean? And I thought, well, it would mean that... uh, Every single human being, every decision, human or non-human, every struggle, every birth, every work of art, everything, would have all been for nothing. In Jerusalem, there is the suggestion that the best moments of your life forever, that that is heaven. And the worst moments of your life forever, that is a kind of hell. Eternal torment and eternal bliss. Right here, right now, both of them. That, to me, emotionally makes a lot more sense. And it does not involve being judged by a remote figure whose views you may not necessarily agree with. One of the things for Jerusalem was trying to give people a different option in how they thought about these terminal things, whether it be their own death or the death of other people or the death of a culture or even the fact that They don't do those sweets that I used to like anymore, but I don't like the songs that are in the charts. I'm not even sure that there is a chart anymore. There's not such good television upon Saturday nights. Um, But yes, that's all fine. Everything's fine, just as it was. You're a magician. Mm -hmm. And one thing about this book that struck me is that it is almost a magical tool. It reminded me of of a prayer flag or a rosary, because you have these people just going around and around and around the streets, saying the names over and over again, and sending them up into the universe somehow. And and us reading that is another layer of reading the rosary. Was that something, and a sort of a way of preserving (coughs) this place that you love, was that something you were thinking about? Well, the thing is that since I actually became a magician, whatever I mean by that, uh, when I was 40, <laughs> you just sometimes have to qualify in case people say, well, do some magic then, do some witchcraft. Doesn't you know, work like turn that. Turn me into a frog. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, you have to explain to them that, no, magic, as I've recently defined it in the forthcoming Moon and Serpent Bumper book, we came up with what I think is a, a better, more inclusive definition of magic, which is any purposeful engagement with the phenomena and possibilities of consciousness. And one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that the metaphorical membrane 
between fiction and reality is much more permeable than anybody imagines. You discover some of these things by accident. You know, you, you do a comic book and then you find that all over the world there are anarchists dressed as Guy Fawkes. It's uh, that things can leak through. With Jerusalem, a lot of my works, that I, I do tend to see them as I will look for an area that is not being treated seriously. Uh, initially, that was comics that nobody treated seriously, apart from a few comic fans and who listened to them. So a lot of my works have been targeted, if you like, mm-hmm. upon areas of cultural thought or areas of culture that I think are potentially important, but for some reason completely ignored and, most importantly, from my point of view, are left unguarded. Uh, there is no perimeter fence. Anybody can just walk in there and do what they want. So Jerusalem, I was thinking, yeah, death. Let's see if I can dynamite death. <laughs> so, yes, it is a magical act. I think everything that I do now, I kind of see as... I'm not, I'm not talking about having my bowl of shreddies in the morning, <laughs> but, but everything in terms that I do creatively. It is informed by a magical worldview and it is intended to on some level as a magical act to change the world it struck me if you could actually get people to consider a world where time does not exist and that therefore the passage of time does not exist and that therefore death does not exist how would that make them revise their lives That was the intention of Jerusalem, and along with its other intentions. I wanted to get them to, in the light that everything is eternal, I'd like them to reappraise the most sordid and run-down areas, which are surely everywhere. I mean, yeah, this book is specifically about Northampton, but, you know, I I think that we probably have poverty everywhere. I think that we have run-down areas like this everywhere, and in the present day, I'd like everybody to reappraise the poor people that they see, the poor neighbourhoods that they happen to pass through, and realise that these are all immortal beings with their immortal stories, and that every place is the eternal golden city. Perhaps, most especially, those places that are the very opposite of that, the places that are most deprived and most disregarded, It was a sense that I got from Blake's Jerusalem that may be the only place that Jerusalem, in that sense, can be founded is amongst those dark satanic mills. That the places that are amongst those dark satanic mills, they have more need for Jerusalem than the pleasant crescents or muse. Part of the book that stuck out to me the most is this Alma who says, that's what art's for, it rescues everything from time. And it struck me that that would be a great epigram for the book. Yeah, that was certainly in many ways my intention. You'll see that by the fact that that is actually in the the epilogue or the afterlude, that it did take me quite a while to actually articulate it so simply. That through all of the, the tumult of existence, remember to enjoy this spectacle because... Um, I think that this is this is the never-ending story. 
This is your narrative. This is the wonderful sacred story of your life. And it's kind of there forever. That's Petra Mayer of NPR Books talking to Alan Moore. And that brings us to the end of Pop Culture Happy Hour. You can follow all of us on Twitter. You can follow the show at PCHH. You can follow me at I Dislike Steven. You can follow Glenn Weldon at GH Weldon and David Green at NPR Green. That's green with an E. And you can follow Petra Mayer at Petramatic. You can follow our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And you can follow our producer, Emeritus, and music director, Mike Katzif at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello Come In, provides our in and out music, which you are tapping your foot to now. Thanks for listening, and we will see you right back here next week. Hey, Sam Sanders here from the NPR Politics Podcast. Mark your calendar. Monday, September 26th is the very first presidential debate. And the next morning, we are inviting you to skip the cable news hangover and get caught up with us. We'll have new podcast episodes the morning after every single debate. So you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get to work or class or finish walking the dog. Whatever your morning routine, make us a part of it. The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the NPR Wine Club, where every bottle tells a story and NPR shows become wines, like Weekend Edition Cabernet Sauvignon. Available to adults 21 years or older. Learn more at nprwineclub.org.